0: This is Real Estate Rookie episode 268.
1: I think a lot of rookies maybe make the wrong assumption that they need a license to be real estate investors when the majority of real estate investors that I know don't have their license. Um, And instead we hire someone who is an expert in that specific thing and we leverage their expertise because my agent and Joshua Tree, like him and his team, I absolutely love them because they they have the process of buying and selling real estate down to a science. And like, if I forget to schedule my in- inspection, his transaction coordinator is saying, hey, I'm going to uh, schedule your inspection for you.
0: My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson.
1: And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And As always, I want to start today's episode by shouting out someone by the username of KSP75. Uh, KSP loved to say five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It says, I own a multifamily home and my family lives in part of the house, so I have some exposure to tenants, leases, et cetera. Real Estate Rookie is fantastic to listen to as it gives information, guidance, and confidence to move to the next level of real estate investing. I plan to devour every episode, take notes, read, research, and be 100% ready with absolute certainty to pounce on my next deal when the conditions are right. So KSP, we appreciate you, and I love that you're going to have the information, guidance, and confidence uh, to take that next deal down.
0: So Tony, what is new with you? Um,
1: I got a I got a different color shirt on today, so I'm rocking the like the maroon, I guess. That I had to almost turn up black, the, <laughs> the <laughs>
0: brightness on my phone because I still thought it was black until the producer said something, and I turned the brightness yeah. of it Like, oh yeah, it is a different shade. <laughs> so I,
1: I think I might try a different color for 2023. So we'll we'll see. But um, now on on, on a serious note, um, we're actually I, I think I'm going to be flying out to uh, West Virginia this weekend. Um, we just got a, a LOI signed on a deal that we've been looking at out there, and it's uh, it's a it's really cool piece of land that we're looking at. It's it's about six acres, and it's near uh, a new national park out in West Virginia. And uh, the property itself has a main house, a guest house, five RV pads, and then it also has the permitting to add a bunch of glamping sites as well. Um, so the idea is that we're going to buy that property at the glamp sites, renovate the, the primary house, and then probably buy a few, uh, Airstream, uh, campers as well to, um, kind of make it a little destination out there. So we're excited for it.
0: That's awesome. That's really exciting. Yeah. Have you been to West Virginia before?
1: Never in my life. So <laughs> this will be the, this will be the first time.
0: Um, when I was younger, I used to do go to the IBO world championships for archery there. Me and my dad and my brother would call five each other.
1: You were in the world championships for archery?
0: For like one league, like the IBO league, but yeah.
1: Why am I just now hearing about this? Have you have you ever told told me that you were in the world championships for archery?
0: I don't know. I mean I feel like it's not that big of a deal. I don't know. But um uh... Yeah, I used to do like 3D, like 3D target archery shooting when I was younger. I mean,
1: how many people can say that they've been in the world championships for anything?
0: But anyways, it was at Snowshoe Mountain each year in West Virginia. And I just loved going there. It was just like this. It's like a little ski village, like on top of the mountain. And it was super cool. And then all of the, the whole archery tournament would be like walking up and down the hills to do the 3D shoot and stuff. So. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, I've never been, so we're. I think we're going to take off this weekend, and it'll be kind of a, a quick turnaround trip. But um, we're we're super excited. This will be our first time doing anything with glamping. Um, wasn't even really in the, in the game plan, but the property kind of presented itself. And actually this person reached out to me on Instagram and, um, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not the best at checking my DMS, but you know, every once in a while I'll go through and kind of try and clear them out. And someone had sent me a deal. It's like, Hey, yeah, I'm looking awful at this. So if you guys have some other good deals that kind of fit that criteria, please continue to send them to me. Cause this, this wouldn't happen without that guy.
0: I'm also going away this weekend, but unfortunately it's not for a deal. It is for a real estate girls weekend in Las Vegas. So some women real estate investors have become my closest friends. So we are having a girls weekend in Las Vegas. Um, We do a lot of trips together, but it's usually like our whole group of friends. Um, But this time it's just going to be a couple of the girls and yeah, we're about to... Take down the Las Vegas Strip.
1: <laughs> as long as you don't have more fun with them than you had with me and Sarah last summer, I think it's totally fine.
0: Well, you know what, I think you're safe because the pools are closed this time of year, so there'll be no pool party yet. No pool parties. <laughs> but I've also, I've been to Las Vegas, I don't know, probably 12 times, but I've never been to like a Las Vegas nightclub. So I, that'll probably be my first time this weekend.
1: Well, as long as, it, as long as it ranks
2: your second most fun Vegas trip, then I think we're we're square, we're good. Transform your lead generation and deal making strategies with deal machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP.
0: So today on the rookie reply, we actually have some great questions that our producer pulled um, from the real estate rookie Facebook group. So we're going to be talking about cleaning for turnover. So after a tenant moves out, how you should charge for it, what's common different ways that you can charge for the cleaning. Um, Also a little bit of seller financing, if the seller does offer that to you, how does that work along with getting bank financing in the same place? And then we talk about getting a survey done on a property. So Tony and I have very different experiences with that. So if you guys wanna weigh in as to what is common in your area, we would love for you guys to hop in um, to the YouTube comments and comment below as to whether you typically do or don't get a survey um, when purchasing a property and why. Okay. So today's first question comes from Jason Dorsey. When purchasing a property, what's the purpose of getting a survey? The realtor is asking if I'm going to get one. Okay. So a survey, a survey is of the, of the land. So where the boundary lines are, you're going to find out where um, how large the parcel is, so how many acres and where those lines actually go. So what is your property that you're actually buying and what is the neighboring property? Uh, So Tony, is it common for people to get surveys done where you live to purchase the property?
1: At least not the properties that I'm buying. I don't think uh, a realtor or anyone or even my lenders have ever asked me to get a survey. Um, But also our parcels are pretty small. I think the lot lines are pretty well defined typically. Um, So maybe that's why it's not as much of a concern for the markets that I'm in.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever closed on a property without having a survey, which is interesting.
1: Isn't that so crazy? Yeah,
0: so what, for here, it's very common to have the survey done, and usually, typically, the seller pays to have the survey done. Where a surveyor comes out, marks the property, you know, maybe stakes the corners of the lot for you, and then draws out basically the survey map. And they'll put, you know, usually where the house is located on the property, the property lines, where the str- a street is. Um, sometimes, though, a person maybe already had a survey done. Maybe previously when they purchased the house or like I bought a little A-frame cabin last year and there was an old survey from like the nineties and I accepted that survey and just had the seller sign, um, an affidavit of no change stating that they were saying that there was no changes to the parcel line, um, Usually it's only recommended that you go back and accept a survey that's maybe only a couple years old um, just to have that sense of security that there weren't any changes to the parcel and to your survey lines. I did have a property that when the survey was done, there was a dispute with um, the neighbors that it wasn't actually done correctly and we didn't close and our closing was pushed off until that actual dispute was done and the, the lines were actually defined as to where the parcel actually went. Um, this is where you can also find out if there's easements on the property too. So maybe like around where I live, it's very common for an easement to the gas company where they have a gas line. So actually on my primary residence, we have a gas well. And there is a a road that goes back to the gas well on the property that the national fuel is the gas company that they can go and have access to at any time. Um, and then they pay, you know, like we get free gas to our house, which is a great, um, yeah, unlimited consumption, which you don't even hear that these days. But, uh, so, um, just there's different things like that. You can also find out from having the survey done on the property. So, if it's recommended from your real estate agent, um, ask if that's something the seller is going to provide. Um, if not, you can always pay for the cost of the survey to be done. And depending on the size of the parcel, I mean, typically I see for like a couple acres, not a ton of buildings or anything on it. You know, it could range from four hundred to you know maybe thousand dollars at the highest.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I've literally never heard of that. I'm like looking through closing docs as you're talking for like some of our old properties to see if maybe it was in there and I just didn't even notice it. But I don't see anything about a survey like in any of the documents that I have. And the closest thing that I have that even shows like the the lot lines is from the uh, the title report. And like the very last page just has like a like an bird's eye view of all the different parcels on that street. And it just kind of outlines which parcel is ours. But no, that's so interesting. I've literally never done that before.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'm like actually shocked too about that one. We had the episode where, you know, we talked about wells and how you guys don't typically have wells where you, you were first purchasing, but um, yeah, for a survey to have that done. Um, So yeah, I would recommend getting a survey done. I'm uh, or seeing if they have one already done. It just, it, it makes things a lot easier too um when you're going if you're getting bank financing. I've recently had banks ask for a copy of the survey too, which i I previously hadn't had that done, but I just did a commercial loan where they asked for a copy of the survey,
1: yeah, and now it makes me wonder if i'm if I'm maybe opening myself up to like issues down the road by not doing that survey. Um, when we are purchasing the property, especially if it's only a few hundred bucks, it's like, just to make sure that there are no issues with the property lines or what if like the neighbor's fence is like 10 feet further than what it's supposed to be. And you can see some of that stuff. Like, um, like my realtor, they use like land glide, like the app or something. So like if we're at the property, they'll, they'll like, Hey, here's where the line is and stuff like that. But, um, it's probably something we should take a little bit more seriously and that I'm hearing about this.
0: Yeah, we use Land Glide too and Onyx Hunt. So we did a little experiment actually a couple weeks ago where this 30 acres I had bought, we walked at the property line and there was, um, it was right after hunting season had ended. And it was like amazing how close some of the tree stands were that were for the neighbors that were, you know, they were facing towards their property, but there were some instances where it's like, eh, that actually might be on our property, their uh, tree stand. And then, um, but the on hunt we did notice was like in the land glide was a little bit off from where the actual stakes were in the corners of the property too. It wasn't like super accurate. Yeah. Cool.
1: Well, should we should move to uh, question two.
0: Yeah. Let's go to the next one. Can you share pros and cons in getting your real estate license just to help yourself in real estate investment deals? This question comes from Teresa Moulter from the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group. You guys aren't in the Real Estate Facebook group yet. Make sure you are joined. It is worth signing up for Facebook uh, just to get into this group. And you'll get to connect with a lot of like-minded investors and also ask questions that we may play onto the show. So Tony, neither one of you, neither one of us have our real estate license, but Sarah is getting her license, correct?
1: Sarah is working on getting hers and even like, even as she's gone through this whole process, she's like almost at the finish line now and we're still debating like, does she even need to go through like the final step of taking the test? And there's a few things that we're looking at, right? First is it's a pretty lengthy process in California to get your license. Like you have to take three courses. There's like some additional like certifications you have to get. And you finally have to take like this exam, which is a, a pretty lengthy exam as well. And obviously there's some costs associated with all of this as well, but it's not like a, you know, in thirty to forty five days, you can have your your uh, your license. It's like a, a six month ordeal at, at minimum, maybe even longer, depending on how fast it takes for you to go through all the all the coursework. So, I think the first question that that, um, that anyone should ask themselves, but Teresa, for you specifically, is how much time and money and energy will it take for you to get your license? And then the second thing is like, what is your goal in doing this? Um, you said that you know is. Maybe it's just like help yourself in your own real estate deal. So, are you looking just that you have like MLS access? Do you want to maybe save on uh, commissions that you would pay to a, a a buyer's agent when you're buying something, or a seller's agent if you're selling something? Like, what is your motivation for doing that? And then, what is the volume that you think that you'll actually use it? Like, if you're buying one deal a year, does it really make sense to go through the hoops of? obtaining and, and and maintaining that license on an annual basis or however frequently it is in your state. Um, I think a lot of rookies maybe make the wrong assumption that they need a license to be real estate investors when the majority of real estate investors that I know don't have their license. Um, and instead, we hire someone who is an expert in that specific thing. And we leverage their expertise because my agent and Joshua Tree, like him and his team, I absolutely love them because they they have the process of buying and selling real estate down to a science. And like, if I forget to schedule my inspection, his transaction coordinator is saying, hey, I'm going to uh, schedule your inspection for you. Or hey, Tony, just a reminder, your due diligence period ends in seven days. If you want to get your request out, let's make sure we do that today. So I, I do think, Teresa, that if your goal is just to save money, maybe not do it. But if you really want to be an agent, then I, I would probably go for it.
0: I started my real estate license like three times. I think I paid like $99 for the online course. And this was, I don't know, five years ago or whatever. And like, you can, you know, you have to rebuy the course after a year or whatever, but I, it got to the same point as to like, why do I need it? And really the only reason I was going to get it was so that I could take myself to showings. So I didn't have to schedule showings with somebody else, with an agent, and I could just go to the properties Then I got to the point where most of my properties were off-market deals. So that was like the only benefit really to me, of course, like saving the money on the commission. But I think it is worth paying the money to have somebody else do the paperwork, draw up the contract, talk to the other agent, deal with the things that come up. Especially, I think it's a huge advantage having an agent when you have tenants in the property and you're trying to sell. Scheduling showings with tenants in properties can be a nightmare just like coordinating with them, you know, getting them to grant access. I've gone to so many showings of properties where I'm supposed to get in a unit and we get there and it's like, nope, sorry, the tenant said no, or you know, they were supposed to be here, they're not, we don't have keys, things like that. And um, I actually sold uh two properties within the last year that had tenants in place. And literally I just, I went with a real estate agent who worked with my property management company, said, this is what I want to sell it for. Here's my property. And he got all the, infor- the tenants information from the property management company. He coordinated every showing with them directly. That right there was worth the commission in itself of having to do that. So, um, it, I, I agree with Tony on this. If, you want to actually run a business as a real estate agent and buy and sell houses for other people, then yes, it could be worth it. Because remember there's those continuing education costs, like to keep your license going, it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time to take those continuing education classes too.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Ash. I, I think it comes down to the ultimate motivation. And like I said, just like you said, I, I would rather pay someone to handle all of the administrative work than me do that myself. Uh, but again, I get it. We're, we're kind of in different spaces in our real estate uh, journey. So maybe it makes more sense for us to do that. But I, my my personal thought, uh, Teresa, is that if you don't plan to make this like an actual income source for you, I might focus more of my time on building my real estate business first um, and then looking at the the agency stuff or the agent work later.
3: And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store, but then
1: books, so many books, best-selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com/bp rookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com/bp rookie now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com/bp rookie.
4: Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Okay,
0: on to our next question by Rick Watts. Has anyone ever purchased a home with occupants in it? Anything I need to consider in trying to get them out? They were there with the permission of the previous owner, but there is no lease agreement of any sort, and they don't seem willing to leave. I'll probably talk with an attorney regarding my legal obligations I'll soul search a little for the ep- ethical obligations as well. Just didn't know if anyone has experienced this before.
1: Ash, can I can I start with a question to you first, right? So I I never buy properties with tenants. Even like our flips that we purchase, a lot of times they are long term rentals beforehand. But it's always a uh, a requirement on my end as the buyer to make sure that the tenants have vacated. And there's actually a flip that we've had under contract for almost two months now because the seller was working to kind of get those tenants out. So my baseline is just like, I'm not going to buy it if there's tenant in there because I don't want the headache of having to try and evict. So from you, from from your perspective, if you have a property that you're looking at purchasing and you already know that the tenants don't want to leave, would you still move forward with buying that?
0: Yeah. And I think something with this question um, that Rick maybe didn't know the do enough due diligence I think maybe as this property was under contract because I think there's some ways that he could have handled this before getting it under contract and trust me there's so many things I wish I would have known on the first couple properties I did too but um, so I bought in quite a few properties that have tenants in place but what I do is I do um, an estoppel agreement where I compare what the landlord is saying to what the tenant is saying so the tenant or the landlord will either say, here's the terms of the lease, here's the lease agreement. Or if it's like in Rick's situation, there's no lease agreement. It's, will they just give me $400 cash per month and their month to month. And this is their name. This is their phone number. This is all I have. Then I'll contact the tenant with the owner's permission, of course, and, you know, have them fill out an estoppel agreement, which basically gives me more information about them, but confirms what the landlord said that, you know, are they saying their rent is also $400 a month? Are they saying that they're actually in a five year lease agreement where the landlord's saying, no, you can get them out as soon as you close on the property? Um, so there are steps that you can take. You can also use this as a negotiation, too. So I recently sold a property, and the person purchasing it wanted the tenants um, removed from the property before buying. So what we did was we gave notice for them to vacate. They were month to month. We gave the proper notice. They said, no, we're not leaving. So we started the eviction process and we actually still closed on the property, but we held money back in escrow to pay for attorney fees if they had to continue with the eviction. So we set like a dollar amount. I think it was maybe like $1,200 or whatever to cover attorney costs if they had to continue with the eviction if the tenant didn't leave. And- so when the tenant left on their own without having to proceed with the eviction, I was refunded that1200 dollars. and then if they went, would have had to go through with the full eviction, the buyer would have gotten to keep that1200 dollars to help cover the cost. So there is some way that you can kind of address this issue before, you know, getting, you know, before closing on the property is stating in your contract that the property to be vacant. So in this exact situation here with Rick is you're going to have to start the eviction process to get these people out of the units. Things to be concerned about is that there is no lease agreement to the property and you want to be careful that you go to court and all of a sudden a lease agreement appears. So getting some kind of documentation, maybe from the previous owner stating, you know, that they were living there at this X amount, they, You know, there wasn't a lease agreement, or they were month to month, something along those lines can definitely help your case. But as far as doing your soul searching for ethical obligations, you are well entitled to the right of that property and just do the legal process of going through with the eviction. And then, Tony, you may know more about this as far as squatter rights. I mean, are they even paying any rent here, or are they just living in the property? Um, Because that can be a whole nother issue in itself where you would have to, again, go through the, the eviction process. But, um, (coughs) excuse me, in California, I believe there's very lenient squatter rights. Is that,
1: Correct. You know, I don't own any long-term rentals in in California. I never have, and but I I do know that. And don't quote me on this because I could be a little off. But I'm pretty sure that even if someone just finds an open house <laughs> and they stay there long enough with no permission from anyone, they can technically have rights as a, a tenant. So it, it definitely is going to vary state from state. Rig. So um, chat with an attorney in, in, in your in your state to get that that right information. But my preference has always been I just don't buy properties to have tenants in there if I don't plan to keep those tenants
0: yeah and um i did a house flip with james daynard in seattle washington and there's pretty favorable squatter rights there too so i always joked with him well if this deal goes south i'm just gonna move into the property and i can at least live there for probably a year or two for free (laughs) to get my return back
1: (laughs) before you get evicted
0: (laughs) okay so let's go on to our next question this question is from rob young and also comes from the real estate rookie facebook group What are the risks associated with seller financing the down payment? I'm the buyer. The seller doesn't own the home free and clear. I can get the mortgage, but don't have the money for the down payment. Seller is willing to extend terms. He would have to satisfy his mortgage when he sells. Wouldn't he? Any advice? Okay, so this is, let's kind of map this out maybe first. Okay, so let's, so Rob is going to get a mortgage to purchase this property. Okay, let's just use for easy math. Let's say it's, he's buying it for $100,000. He's getting a mortgage for 80%, so $80,000, and he needs $20,000. The seller is saying, I will loan you the $20,000 for the down payment. You have to pay me X amount over five years or whatever that is. So the thing with this, though, is that the bank is going to want to see where that money came from, especially if you're doing it residential, where you have to show that you earned that income or you had that money saved or that money came from you, or it was a gift from a family member. Um, Seeing that you got the money from the seller may not qualify as funds, proof of funds for the property. So that's the first discussion I would have is going to the loan officer, the lender that you're using and ask about the situation. If you're doing commercial financing, I know that um, of this happens quite commonly where the seller will f- do seller financing for the down payment. You disclose it to the bank, the bank runs the numbers and says, okay, this rental property can afford to pay its monthly expenses including these two mortgage payments, one to the bank for the $80,000 and the other to the seller for the $20,000. Approved, go ahead, let's move forward. But that's my concern with this. Is this going to be residential financing or is this going to be commercial financing? So that's kind of like the first step I would look at for this kind of situation.
1: And I, I think Rob, just to give you like some some clarity on kind of how the the money flows between like buyer, bank, seller, bank, because there's a few steps in there, right? So going back to to your example, Ashley, of say that uh, Rob is buying this house for $100,000, he's getting a a mortgage for $80,000 and he has a down payment of 20. And let's say that this seller maybe owes $35,000 on the house. So, you know, using round numbers, if they're selling it for 100, they're going to pay off their $35,000 mortgage. They'll be left with $65,000 afterwards, right? But Rob, the money just doesn't flow from you directly to the seller. Usually there's a a third party in between. In California, we use title escrow companies. And the way that it works is when you... When the bank sends their check-in for $80,000, they're going to send that into title and escrow. Escrow is then going to go to the seller and say, hey, Mr. Seller, this money is for the property that you're selling to Rob. We see that you still owe $35,000 to Bank of America for this property. So before we issue you any funds, we're first going to pay off your $35,000 debt, this due to Bank of America, and you will get the balance, which is 65,000. So Rob, you don't necessarily have to worry about... um, the seller paying off that initial mortgage, because as long as you go through title and escrow, they're going to make sure that any debt or any, any kind of liens, anything against that property are paid off before that money actually goes to the seller.
0: Yeah. So that's a great point as you want to make sure that the money you're paying so that $80,000 in our example would cover what is owed on the mortgage or that the seller does have the money, but Like Tony said, that's something that title will make sure happens um, at closing and you're not all of a sudden going to own this property, but there'll be another lien still left on the property from the the previous owner.
1: Ash, based on what you said, I I do agree. I think it is common that uh, you'll see sometimes where the seller will carry back some portion of the down payment. Um, And honestly, I I think there are some smaller banks, right? If if Rob is working with maybe like a local credit union or something that might be comfortable with the seller having a second lien against the property as well. Rob, that's typically where banks kind of feel weird, where they don't want anyone in second lien position. They want you to have some kind of skin in the game and not another lender. Um, but if you're working with maybe a smaller credit union or a local bank, maybe they are comfortable giving you 80K for the first and then having the seller give you 20K for the second. So I think it depends on what bank you're working with.
0: Especially if you're buying the property below market value. like If you can show the bank comps and say, look, I'm buying this house for a 100,000, but Every like any other house that's like this around me is selling for at least one hundred and fifty thousand. Like I'm already buying it fifty thousand dollars below market or whatever that is. That definitely would help your case too. Okay, so our next question here is from Eric Dono: Cleaning and move-in fees. How do you work with fees for my long-term rentals? I have been charging a move-in fee to cover a professional cleaning prior to move-in. My thinking was it's better to do this than to take out the cleaning fee from their deposit on move-in. How do you deal with cleaning? Do you just eat the cost, take it out of the deposit upon move-in, don't clean at all? Okay, so this is more of a a long-term question, Um, but Tony, maybe after we kind of go through the long-term rental situation, you can even cover it um, on the short-term rental side too. So for a long-term rental, you can charge a move-in cleaning fee. I don't typically see this often, really. I honestly don't know if I've ever seen anyone do this. I mean, you can charge the fee, um, unless your state, you know, doesn't allow you to do that. What I do is um I do a a cleaning checklist. So when somebody moves into the apartment, they walk through with me and we do almost like an inspection of the property where they can say like, you know what? There's this like dent in the trim here. I don't want to be charged for that. There is a stain in this corner of the carpet or whatever these things are, they can go through and mark, or they're going to go through and just say, yep, everything is in great condition, great condition, great condition. Maybe there's a little wear and tear on one of the cabinets. They can mark that down, document everything with photos. You as a landlord sign or the property manager. And then the tenant also signs dated, This is the date they receive their keys. They're going into the unit, okay? Everything's fine and good. Then when it is time to move out, they are given a a cleaning checklist. So I actually provide this up front when they do move in. So, hey, just, you know, when you move out, this is everything that needs to be cleaned. And I actually got this list from my sister when she graduated college. She had to move away for a teaching job for a couple of years in the apartment that she was in um I went to move her out when she was done and they gave her this cleaning checklist and it itemized everything as to like if this wasn't done what you would be charged. So if you didn't clean out the fridge that was $10 or whatever it was. I mean this was actually a pretty like nitpicky list and like where it's like wiping down the blinds everything like that and I remember my sister just freaking out that it wasn't going to be clean enough. I mean, she literally did not even touch this place the whole year she lived in it or whatever it was. Like it was spotless. And I remember the the manager coming to do her move out inspection and he just like glanced around. He's like, okay, it looks great. She's like, that's it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you took really good care of this place. Thank you. And she had, you know, like two days before spent just like cleaning every little speck of corner, even though there wasn't even any dirt or dust in it. But So implementing some kind of checklist where your tenants know ahead of time, this is the expectation for when you move out. So there's no surprise. And they've already signed that inspection sheet saying you both agree that it's in good condition. There was nothing wrong with the unit when they moved in. So when, and then I always refresh give them that, you know, when they give their notice, they're moving out, give them that inspection sheet. So that's where you can do like, you know, write down like this is the cost per an item. Like, If the carpets need to be cleaned because they're stains, you know, like they need to be professionally cleaned or something like that, that is a $100 charge, whatever it is. Or you can do a flat rate cleaning fee. Like if you don't clean the unit, have this checklist of things cleaned, we're going to charge you $250 because that's what it costs us to have somebody come in and do that. Um, And then when the tenants move out, they have their belongings, you come in and you do the walkthrough with the tenant stating okay, you know, this wasn't cleaned here. This wasn't there. Um, in New York state in June of 2019, they actually changed the law where you actually have to offer the tenant to do the move out inspection prior to them actually moving out. So when they give notice, I think, I think it's two weeks before their actual move out date, you have to offer them the chance to have an inspection there. It's kind of like a pre-inspection so that they have the opportunity to correct anything. So say there's, you know, uh, a hole in the wall or something, this gives them the opportunity to patch and paint it, which if you guys follow me on Instagram, you can see that's not always the best thing is to have your tenants do repairs uh, on their own. But um, so those are, that's the way that I've done it. And I typically see it is that there's no fee charged and that can be taken out of their security deposit until after they have moved out.
1: Yeah, that is a, a great breakdown Ashley and and the m- the the most experience I had with that was that property management company that I worked at after college and their process was almost exactly what you just said where um, like, uh, you know, some period of time before the guests actually, or the guests <laughs> before the tenant was actually supposed to move out, um, they would do an initial walkthrough. And then the day that the tenant was returning the keys, they would do the final walkthrough to make sure that everything was corrected and whatever wasn't corrected. They were billed, obviously taken out of their security deposit and if went over, then they would be issued a, like a, an invoice, but they were billed for every item that was still outstanding. Um, so that was kind of their process, but yeah, I don't think I've ever, met anyone that charges their tenants a move in like a cleaning fee when they move in to the property um but i guess eric if it's working for you and, and people are still still looking to say it's your place and maybe it works but um like ash said there are a lot of a lot of other options there
0: okay so that is it for today's rookie reply i hope you guys took away a ton of value from this if there are questions that you want answered Please send Tony or I a DM on Instagram. You can um, leave a question in the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group where you'll probably get a ton of responses before we're actually even able to air the episode with our response on it. So, thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm Ashley at Wealth from Rentals, and he's Tony at Tony J Robinson. And we'll be back on Wednesday with a guest.